two, no, 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 one. All right, everybody, welcome to episode number 64 of the Between the Cracks podcast. I am your host, Bill, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Chris. So, Chris, what I should actually say is episode 64, take two. Right, bud? Well, we like to give full disclosure here at uh, BTC. We did try to record this, what, a couple weeks ago, and... uh, it was about, I'd say, a little over an hour before we realized that it wasn't recording anymore. <laughs> it had stopped recording at the 15-minute mark for some reason. So all that work went for naught, and uh, we were both kind of in a sour mood after that, so we shut it down, and then the following day, I uh, had to leave town on vacation. To your favorite place, right? The beach? <laughs> right to the goddamn beach, Chris. I went with my wife's family, which is great. You know, we had a good time. But I, I've bitched about it here before. The, the beach just is not for me, dude. First off, it's so hot. The sand. And it, then, like, I'm, I'm just so bone white and I burn so easily that my wife had to put so much sunscreen on me, dude, that I, I literally look like E.T. Remember the scene where he was sick laying in the puddle? Like, I had just, like, globs of white on me. Like, I looked very, <laughs> I looked very ill. It's just a very uncomfortable feeling because, A, just the feeling of having all the sunscreen on you if you don't want to, like, have your skin melt off your body. And then the sand. And the sand gets everywhere. And you're somehow eating it for, like, the next <laughs> several days. And you don't even know where it came from. Oh, dude, the worst part is the sand getting stuck to the suntan lotion and it forms this paste like a paper mache it's terrible like you're being dipped and ready for the fryer <laughs> but with all that said bud i am back home in the beautiful hudson valley and do you know what chris do you tell <laughs> we're going to be staying here for the next month or so that's right because we are jumping in to our official hudson valley horror month can you believe it thank you God, I just hope it means cooler weather. Of course it won't, but that's neither here nor there. Let's stick with the positive, Chris. Please, your negativity is bringing me down. Hudson Valley Horror Month. It is a month of true crime and unsolved mysteries taking place in our own backyard. Now, before we get started with tonight's case, perhaps we should give a brief description of the old Hudson Valley. Bud, what do you got for us? The Hudson Valley is uh, a span of 10 counties that runs from southern New York or from like New York City up to around the capital in Albany. And it's it's 10 counties split right down the middle by the Hudson River. It's so crazy. I never realized, like thinking about the Hudson Valley, I, I consider it like maybe five, six counties. I, I, I never really consider, you know, all the ways up in Albany and Rensselaer County as part of the Hudson Valley. But it does break down into three sections, pretty much. There's the upper Hudson Valley. Then there's the mid Hudson Valley. And last but not least, the lower Hudson Valley, where you reside these days, Chris. Oh, I hate the lower Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> just, it is for, the further you go south, the more people are around you. Oh, and, you're clo- and I just, well, I don't like people. So yeah, I, I like to stay on the northern side of the Hudson. Well, that's where I am, Chris. I'm I'm nestled up here nicely in the northern section of the Mid-Hudson Valley. So as Chris said, I mean, th- this region is split in two by the glorious Hudson River. And there's counties on either side. What could possibly go wrong in this region? 
Well, <laughs> allow me to tell you, because there's a lot of places to hide around here. Um, but for what we're going to be talking about tonight, and in this specific case, Chris, we're going to be in my neck of the woods. That's right, little buddy. Tonight, we're going to be in the northeastern corner of Dutchess County. Right here, in my own backyard. I say, Chris, right here, <laughs> in my own backyard. Yes, and one thing I love about that part of the Hudson Valley is that open space and the farm country, which is where we'll be talking about tonight. <laughs> oh, indeed we will, Chris, because tonight, little buddy, we are talking about the German family murders, which took place in Stanfordville, New York. More specifically, we're going to be talking about 1930s Stanfordville, New York. So, Chris, without any further ado, bud, let's get right into it. Now, the German family, from all accounts, were a very close-knit family. The family consisted of the father, James, who went by the nickname of Husted, his wife, Mabel, their 18-year-old daughter, Bernice, and their 10-year-old son, Raymond. So the German family leased and operated a local dairy farm in Stanfordville, New York, and they ended up producing dairy products for local vendors and other companies. And one, I might add, Chris, was the infamous Borden Company. Oh, yeah, Borden Dairy. I've uh, I heard of that. I actually saw someone recently post an old picture of an old bottle, like an old glass bottle. I love that shit, like an old glass dairy bottle. just makes me think about this dropping off some guy in a a uniform with that little hat on that's dropping milk off at your doorstep. <laughs> well, that glass bottle could very well have been filled by Husted here. We don't know, Chris. How crazy would that be? But yeah, you never know. So, I mean, from all accounts, as I said, the family was close. And I would imagine within that small farming community that, you know, your relationship with other farmers and, and vendors there would be somewhat tight. So from everything we end up hearing, Husted, nor any other members of the Jamon family, had any known enemies. That's what makes what happens next, oh, so very perplexing. Every community's got to have crime, right? Whether it be low or not is one thing. And obviously, closer to the cities you get, the more crime, the more people. Makes sense. But, you know, maybe uh, a theft... You know, uh, someone skipped out on uh, paying for their lunch or something. You know, that's the kind of crime I expect to hear when you're talking about farmland country. Some uh, little huckleberry stole blueberry pie from a granny's window. <laughs> right. They were, they were sitting it out on the deck, you know, letting it uh, cool off, and someone came by and stole it. <laughs> oh, you never expect a quadruple murder. Oh, but uh, boy, oh boy, did we get one, Chris. So uh, let's break this down and let's start with the discovery of the bodies. And that discovery happened on November 28th of 1930, the day after Thanksgiving. That is when Willard Kuhn, a Borden employee, remember we said that Husted used to make deliveries there. So apparently one of the supervisors at uh, the facility got concerned. They haven't seen Husted in... A day or two and that wasn't like him to miss his deliveries so the supervisor who was running the plant there he sent willard coons up to the jamon family farm to see what the hell was going on here and that's when willard made the unfortunate discovery that we're about to tell you about so one of the things that willard realizes that's a little off when he gets there is that no one's outside yet he hears the sound of the milking machine going off 
And apparently he even noticed the fact that the cows looked like they needed to be milked. Now, obviously cows... <laughs> obviously cows need to be milked, I would imagine, somewhat regularly if you want to keep a constant supply of milk. So being a well-seasoned farmer, he noticed that the cows needed to be milked. So something was off already. So now he's doing a little digging. He's verbally trying to get a response from somebody. Hello, like anybody would do when you're walking out. You don't want to like intrude on someone's home or something without kind of letting them know you're there. And the unfortunate discovery that he first makes when he goes to open the barn door that is apparently slightly already open is he sees the bodies of not only Husted, but his 10-year-old son, Raymond, stabbed to death. So Willard, at this point, is just in complete shock, right? He didn't stick around to see if he could find Mabel or Bernice, the mother and the daughter. He just immediately runs and gets help. I mean, obviously, he doesn't know what the situation is. He doesn't know what the hell happened other than his friend here and his son have been stabbed to death. So what Willard does is run to their neighbors, the next farm over. Get this, Chris. It was owned by none other than Husted's brother, Paul. So Paul runs over to the house, and that's when he busts into the house and sees Mabel and her 18-year-old daughter, Bernice, laying on the ground, stabbed to death. So... At this point in time, we have four murders. The entire family is wiped out by a knife-wielding lunatic. You know, as we said, this was around uh, Thanksgiving. And as the story goes, and I picked this up from uh, this great book that I ended up finding in CBS, no less. And it's called Hudson Valley Murder and Mayhem by Andrew K. Amelinx, right? And this, this book's great. I'm going to actually use it for some other stories we do down the road here for the Hudson Valley. But he tells the story of how Bernice arrived home on the bus on November 26th, the day before Thanksgiving. So she arrives on a Wednesday. Thanksgiving was that Thursday. And then Willard Coon shows up on that Friday, right? So the weird thing that she noted that the bus driver ends up telling uh, the authorities is that it seemed very odd to her that the family farm looked like it was shut down. There were no lights from inside the house. There seemed to be no movement near the barn or in the, uh, the fields of the farm. Absolutely nothing. Think about that, dude. The lights are out. And at that point, I'm guessing, I'm surmising that the other members of the family were likely already murdered. And to make it all the more eerie, you have to believe that the killer was inside waiting for Bernice to get off that bus. So someone had to know that she was due to arrive at some point that evening. I don't have any doubt in my mind that the three other three members of the family were murdered at that point. I mean, the fact that it, all the lights were out and it was basically nighttime at that point. The sun had set almost a half hour prior and she thinks it's odd. So now we're talking uh, definitely the murderer is still in the house when she's rolling up off this bus. You know, it's a little suspicious to me that this murderer stayed in the house right up to the point where she got off the bus, as if they knew that there was a fourth member coming at least. Let's just put this in perspective. If this was somebody that they knew, that person could have been privy to the fact that there was another member and knew everything about 
Bernice, you know, that she was at school, that she was coming home. So this is something to keep in mind for uh, further down the road. Yeah, I mean, none of this really makes sense. You know, I'm looking at this and we have a timeline here of Bernice arriving on the 26th, on, on that evening of the 26th. Then we have Husted missing his delivery on Thanksgiving and then Willard Coons showing up on Friday the 28th, right? So now the odd thing here for me is with the brother Paul living next door, wouldn't there be any communication uh, on Thanksgiving Day between the families, especially being neighbors? I'd imagine being literally right next door to your your own blood. So, I mean, if you don't show up for Thanksgiving or, you're, you know, at, at least call or stop by, maybe you want to go check <laughs> and see what the hell's going on. So it, it just seems odd to me that Willard is the one that made the discovery and, you know, that, that Paul didn't seem to have any suspicious notion of uh, anything going on at the farm. I mean, we don't, you know, there, there could be any factor involved with that, right? Maybe they weren't a, you know, the closest of family or B, they like to, you know, celebrate their own respective families. No idea, but it well, definitely, I, I'm not raises... asking for mu- I'm not asking for much, Chris, just a happy Thanksgiving and then you be on your way. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It, it definitely raises some eyebrows, though. I'd imagine it would for an investigator. <laughs> All right, Chris. So uh, I, I think you're right there. So let's get back to this discovery. So as we said, Paul runs into the house. He finds Mabel and Bernice in the kitchen, right? And it should be noticed that Bernice was the only one that appeared to have defensive wounds on her. So, I mean, that, that kind of gives proof to uh, our theory that the killer was obviously in there waiting for her most likely came face to face with them and received those defensive wounds trying to protect herself. But as we also stated, Willard then split. He went back down to Borden. He called the police. He let the plant know what happened. So within, I don't know, 10 minutes or so, the place was swarming with Dutchess County sheriffs and New York State troopers. And I'd imagine if you're a trooper or a local police officer, You've never had to deal with anything even remotely close to this. And uh, not in 1930 Stanfordville, I would assume. <laughs> no way. Not even, I, I doubt even a single murder, maybe an accidental death, but not a murder, especially not four. And well, the, you know, the, the, the crazy thing is where all those cops and detectives uh, on the property there, they came across no substantial piece of evidence. Or so we're told. But <laughs> what's not funny, but what's odd to me is that it's noted that a pair of brown, bloody gloves were found in the kitchen next to the bodies of Mabel and Bernice. But then they say that they found no evidence. Then again, we're talking about 1930. So what was not considered evidence then would probably be considered evidence today because of how easily they'd be able to extract fingerprints and this and that. But nonetheless, this is 1930. You can't just get DNA samples and this and that and, and, and run on, figure out who the hell did this whole thing. We got to get those gloves and send them over to uh, 23andMe. How many cases have been solved from decades ago because of that? That that Golden State Killer or whatever the hell the, that guy's name was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's right. Yeah, exactly. So, like, right, back then, you're more likely to get away with murder, especially in a completely rural community where no one is likely to see you 
what the police have to work with here is very little. So, yeah, there there's not much in the way of evidence. So, days pass. They're still searching the farm. Word starts to spread, and it spreads like wildfire. You know, you can imagine what it's like here in Dutchess County, and that spreads, you know, through all the other counties within the uh, Hudson Valley region, because this is just something you don't see every day, you know, and that led to a, just a, a bounty uh, of news reporters and uh, onlookers. Our first break in this case is a piece of evidence that gets found not by a cop, but by a cab driver or a livery driver that was driving three reporters from New York City to the farm. Now, this guy gets out of his cab. He's just walking along the farm. And, uh, Bud, according to him, he finds a large butcher knife along the property fence of the farm. Now, riddle me this. How could that place have been swarmed with cops for three days and they come across nothing Yet this little twerp shows up in a cab or whatever the hell he's in, walks along the fence and finds a butcher knife. Something doesn't add up. Yeah, I, who knows if this was something that was placed or whatnot? Because you have to remember, too, one thing that we haven't mentioned yet was that the governor is Governor Roosevelt. Whoa, 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 whoa. You mean Roosevelt? Got two o- <laughs> yeah, he got two O's in there, Chris. Roos. <laughs> oh, pardon my uh, mispronunciation. <laughs> But he's from Dutchess County. He is. So, and not only that, he's running for president. So, it's kind of crazy because this puts a lot more light on the case than probably would normally happen. Granted, this was a quadruple homicide uh, in a rural town. So, of course, it's going to grab the attention of at least the state. But now it grabs attention of the entire country. And you would expect that there is a lot on this case in terms of not only the because the spotlight's so big, but getting it solved. Oh, yeah, there's got to be pressure on, on the police, the politicians, everybody involved. Exactly. And so, not, not that I'm saying this happened, but when, when that happens, you get a little bit of pressure and, and you may start, things may start appearing, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Out of thin air. But uh, <laughs> that's what I suspect happened with this knife. <laughs> there's no way the New York State Police and the Dutchess County Sheriff's did not find that. Okay, so my guess is that Maybe it just fell from the heavens above. We don't know. But the important thing is, Chris, that the knife was wiped clean and there was no evidence on the knife itself. No blood, no fingerprints, nothing of any substance that the police could use. But there is one little thing that they were able to do. And that is the fact that they were able to trace the knife back to a store in Poughkeepsie. So, I mean, that's one thing that they have at their advantage back in the, you know, (laughs) the old days, (laughs) right? They just don't have as much commerce. You know, you have like your neighborhood store, a blacksmith, right? So you know that if you're finding this custom knife or just a knife in general, it's probably coming from a cutlery place in uh, nearby Poughkeepsie. And that's exactly where this came from. And they brought the knife in to uh, have it examined by the owner and see if he remembered anything about who purchased that knife. Unfortunately, he could not recall who purchased it, and that just led to a dead end. Just to put a little perspective on this, to how badly they want information or how badly they want to make an arrest, the reward for information leading to an arrest was $25,000. That's about $400,000 in today's money. And they want something, and they want something now. Now, that probably had a lot to do with the effect that Roosevelt was getting involved 
And there was a lot of pressure, like we said before, on, on finding more information out. So, I mean, <laughs> you're right, Chris. There was a lot of pressure. And you know how these things go, Chris. When, they, when people see the rewards, reports start coming in from all over the place. And the cops have to do their due diligence, especially in a case like this. You have to check out every lead. And that is when one lead came in about a suspicious character that was seen walking past a Germond farm the day of the murders. That man was later identified as Florentine Chase. Now, his story gets a little odd. So, as I said, he was seen walking past the farm on the day of the murders. He then walked from Stanfordville down to a town called Clinton Corners, which is about five miles away. He walks into a store, and in retrospect, the owner of the store said that he was acting suspicious, and, and everybody's always suspicious after the, after the crime happened, so we don't know, <laughs> right? But uh, Florentine Chase, as he calls himself, uh, said that he was looking to head to Hudson because he had gotten a telegram that his mom was sick and she was in a hospital up in Hudson. So he asked the store owner if there's any way to get to the train station in Poughkeepsie, and the store owner arranges for his friends to drive him uh, in exchange for $10, which at that time is, is quite a big sum of money to get from Clinton Corners to Poughkeepsie. God. And this is all going to tie together, Chris, and I promise. So the guys that drove him to the train station got to talking to him, and he said that, you know, his name was Florentine Chase and that he was an employee at, get this, bud, the Borden Dairy Company, the same company that Husted used to deliver to. Oh. Uh-huh. So he threw a couple names around of guys that he knew in the area, and one such name was Ernie Nardun and Ernie worked as a laborer on a project next door to the German family farm. So now the police get word of this. They go find this Ernie character. They describe this guy, Florentine Chase, right? And Ernie goes, I don't know anybody by that name. He goes, The only Florentine I know is a man by the name of Florentine Irmendi that worked with us once in a while. So let, let's see if we could make any sense out of this. So we have <laughs> this gentleman that's seen walking down the road past the German family farm at the time of the murders. He was acting suspicious. He gives his name as Florentine Chase, and he starts dropping names. So, I mean, this guy can't be too bright, especially if he's giving aliases, but still using the first name Florentine. That's one thing that's out of the ordinary, and then starts actually giving names of people he knows in the area, and then lying about the fact that he works at Borden. So Ernie then says, I don't know anybody by that name. He goes, but I do know this Ermendi, and he lived in New York City. So the Dutchess County Sheriff's and the New York State Troopers then get the help of the NYPD, and they're able to track this guy down. And they transport Florentine back up here to Dutchess County, and they held him for nearly two months as a material witness before being able to be let go. And this is just another dead end. Just keep Florentine Chase or Amendi on the back burner for now, because I have a theory that I think is going to blow the lid off this case, Chris. At this point, you know, now we're moving on to a year after the murders, two years, three years. There's just still nothing. This case is still unresolved. That is until 1933, nearly three years after the German family murders, Chris. And that is when we get our, what some say, and myself included, the most 
viable suspect in this case. Am I right? Chris. Jesus, I thought thought the show was over. (laughs) Right, you are. And I believe as well that this, in fact, this comes across as a home run at first. And Sheriff Oakley Cookingham believes so as well, as he makes an excellent case against one of German's neighbors by the name of Arthur Curry. One thing that makes Arthur such a prime suspect here is that he has a violent history, which he had prior arrests for, and there was a link between Curry and Husted because Husted owed him money. So what ties Arthur even further to this case is that investigators find out that on the day these murders took place, Curry had apparently told his wife that he was heading over to the German farm to get money from Husted that was owed to him. And he came back around 6.30 p.m. Let me add this uh, little piece of evidence in here, Chris. It was later revealed that upon searching Husted's body, they found his wallet. And that wallet was minus $100 that had been in it previously. So money was taken. That's a very interesting point. And I'd imagine $100, well, we know for a fact that $100 was a lot of money back then. So for someone to be owed that kind of money, you know, I'd, I'd imagine that you'd want someone to cough it up. So... The crazy part here is that he apparently comes back after his, he told his wife that he was heading over there. He comes back around 6.30 p.m. Now, the sun sets at 4.27 on that day of the murder. And guess who arrives just after 5 p.m. that night? Bernice. Mm-hmm. And she notices that the lights were out and something was wrong. So her family's murdered. Then she gets murdered. What are the odds that Arthur went to that house, left, and then a murderer came there? Very slim. Uh, Indeed. And also him being the neighbor and Bernice being a college student in Poughkeepsie, making that, that commute every once in a while to come back to the family farm. You're talking about someone who would know her routine. And probably in daily contact with the neighbors, whether just being passing or not, talked to Husted, found out that Bernice was arriving home that day and stayed in the house waiting for her to arrive. Yeah, there's just too much here. And what actually ends up happening is that they charge Curry on March 9th, 1933. They charge Curry for the murders. This, of course, was just a charge, so now it has to go to court. And the defense lawyer shredded the case apart. There was just no evidence to really link him for certain that he was the murderer of the German family. Talk about a situation where you're almost certain that somebody has murdered four people and they get to walk free. And that's not to say that Arthur is for sure the murderer because we obviously don't have great evidence on it. But imagine pretty being pretty sure that the guy murdered those people and he gets to walk away. 
Well, that brings me back to those bloody gloves that were found in the kitchen. I mean, we're talking three years later. You would think that those would actually be held on to as evidence, but we never hear of them coming into play again. So that makes me wonder, could those gloves have belonged to Curry? We don't know, and we never find out. No, we do not, because, Chris, in 1955... 12 years later, after being charged with uh, the murders and eventually having those charges dismissed, Arthur Curry died. And upon that death, Chris, he took whatever he knew about this case with him. Because as of today, as we said earlier, this case remains unsolved. So let me put this all together, Chris, and you tell me what you think, if this makes any sense to you. So you recall our man Florentine, the initial suspect that fled to New York City that was seen walking past the family farm on that fateful day. Perhaps, just perhaps, he knew Curry and he worked as a laborer on Curry's farm and those two together carried out the murders, or at least the three murders of Husted, Mabel, and their young son Raymond. And at that point, Florentine leaves leaving Curry there by himself to commit the final murder of Bernice. Now, I mean, I'm just guessing here, but that does kind of all fit together, doesn't it, Chris? Interesting theory. But that still would make me wonder, though. You have to be a complete lunatic to kill an entire family. What value does that bring to you? It's not like... Killing Husted for his money would be one thing, but killing the entire family for none other reason than just to not have any witnesses, I guess. You may be onto something there. Maybe uh, led to a fight between Curry and Husted. Curry killed him. He saw that Raymond was there and witnessed it. And then he said, you know what? I got to knock out everybody here. So I don't know, Chris. This has been nearly 100 years and still unsolved. What the hell do you want from me, bud? Well, we have a record to keep here. We're, we've, we've solved every case. Yeah, I think we might do that tonight, too. But, uh, yeah, so, Chris, I mean, I don't know, but but uh, what says you? What do you think happened? I think Arthur definitely did it. And a couple things that bother me is, one, how did it take over two years to find out that information about Arthur? It was being hidden, I'd imagine. Why did we just find out from the wife that he happened to be there that exact night and was looking for money? I mean, it's too coincidental. I don't think there's any way that Arthur is not the murderer, if not at least involved in the murders. Damn. I mean, you were really coming out full force tonight, Chris. You came out swinging. I'm just telling you what I see here. <laughs> but unfortunately, Chris, like we said, Arthur died in 1955. And if anybody was hoping for a deathbed confession, <laughs> they did not get it because this case is unsolved. And I think it's going to remain that way till the end of time. Right. You probably be. But I think we're going to send you <laughs> to investigate further. Although we are in the Hudson Valley, so maybe perhaps we should uh, take a trip around the old farm area. Oh, see what's over there. Dude, well, uh, like I said, this is Hudson Valley Horror Month, and we have our work cut out for us the next month or so, bud. 
Right, you are. And I'm pretty excited about this. I like local stuff. I love the fall. You know, it's just that time of year where you get that feel about, you know, horror stories or, you know, just crimes. Yeah. So it's going to be fun. It is fun. As long as it's not happening to us, you know, it's always... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm all for keeping the Hudson Valley weird, but fuck. So wait, one, one thing I actually wanted to mention before that I'll briefly just mention, there is another link in terms of horror and true crime stories here to this case and the link would be through the Borden Dairy Farm so the owner of Borden Dairies and the name Borden probably rings a bell to you right because of Lizzie Borden oh the owner or the creator Gail Borden Jr. is actually a distant cousin to Lizzie Borden so perhaps a case that we touch on later down the road but Another thing I found interesting about this case and how it was linked to something. So um, what you're really trying to say is, Chris, that there is something in the milk. <laughs> uh, well, like, that's not what I'm saying. You know, saying, like something but... in the water, you know, that, that type of deal. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, Chris, and I, I shouldn't mention again, I got to give this guy another shout out because this fucking book's awesome. This Hudson Valley Murder and Mayhem by my man, Andrew Emelinx. I mean, he has all these stories, these these old-time Hudson Valley stories that I was none the wiser to. And I'm really glad I walked past this goddamn book, and I found it in CVS of all places. So, <laughs> a shout-out to CVS, too. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet you had a mile-long receipt for that Oh, book. God, man. I, <laughs> I, I can't leave. It does not matter what mood I enter CVS in, I leave in a bad mood once that receipt comes out. <laughs> But that's it, Chris. Uh, let's get the rundown and get the hell out of here because now I am sweating like a madman and my sunburn is starting to affect me and I'm getting more and more irritable as the recording goes on. So let's wrap this up. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com or you can get in touch with me on Instagram at Between the Cracks Podcast. I will answer you back. Uh, what else, Chris? Uh, if you'd like to become one of our beautiful patrons, please feel free. And you can do that by clicking on the link in the show notes. There are different tiers there, so you can look through it and see uh, what strikes your fancy. If you're interested in any merch, BTC merch for some reason, if you'd like to wear something from our show. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to be associated with us at all. <laughs> you can find that link in the show notes too. That's Teespring. Uh, dot com search btc but i'll put the link in that as well and uh i think that's it chris so without any further ado bud i gotta edit this and get cracking on the next hudson valley story which will take place next week little buddy we think <laughs> unless we have a recording malfunction in which case we'll get angry enough to not record for at least another two weeks oh uh, god chris all right so with all that said what do you say we wish the fine, fine people out in podcast land the fondest? Oh, a farewell.